Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to your favorite one-stop shop for horror news, true crime, and real-life tales of the unexplained, Monsters at Midnight, The Revenge. I'm your host, your favorite escaped madman, loose on the airwaves, terrorizing your eardrums, Matt Schaefer. And I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Mine was pretty nice. Um, if you choose to celebrate... Um, it's a complicated holiday, that's for sure. Um, but I, there's uh, plenty that I am thankful for, and uh, you, the listeners, are certainly among those things that I am thankful for. Still on my own, um, which is sort of a shame given the topic I'm going to cover in this week's episode. Uh, I think JoLynn would really have a lot to say and uh, really want to be a part of this one, but... Unfortunately, for the time being, still uh, kicking it solo in the castle. Hopefully, with uh, less cats screaming in the background this time. So, without further ado, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn out the lights. Monsters at Midnight, the motherfucking revenge, rides again. Want to talk about something here, um... Is very important to me. Uh, someone who is very important to me. I want to talk about Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, if uh, you are unaware, is a famed film composer. Uh, he has provided the soundtracks for... Good lord. Um, over a hundred feature films. Uh, frequently collaborating with uh, Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, and uh, Gus Van Sant, to name a few. You may recognize his soundtracks for uh, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, and of course, all of the written and uh, performed music in The Nightmare Before Christmas. For which, he also provides the singing voice for the lead character in that movie, Jack Skellington. Uh, before all of this, though, Danny Elfman was most famously known as the frontman for the new wave band Oingo Boingo. And if you are familiar with this show, if you know me and Jolyn personally, you'll know that we are obsessed with Oingo Boingo. I have an Oingo Boingo tattoo. They are my favorite band. And largely in part due to uh, Danny Elfman's uh, compositions and lyrics and his singing voice. Uh, I was exposed to Oingo Boingo at a very young age because I was a big, big fan of Nightmare Before Christmas. And my mom had been into Boingo since she was in college. She worked on a, the college radio station, and uh, they weren't allowed to play Top 40 music. So through friends, she discovered Oingo Boingo, and uh, she's told, told me that uh, she would close out her uh, radio shows with Goodbye Goodbye by them. So when I was very, very young, my mom played... Dead Man's Party for me, the song, and just uh, asked me if I recognized who was singing. 
I certainly did. I knew that I knew Jack Skellington's voice anywhere. And probably getting in the middle school, maybe high school, I'm not really sure at this point. But but I at a certain point I started digging deeper into their discography and was just like overwhelmed by how much great music there was to discover. Oingo Boingo is a is a new wave band, sure, but it's uh, it's hard it's hard to it's it's a very broad term. New wave, new wave was just this uh, was a movement in music in the early '80s that was sort of a blend of punk music, but with uh, you know synth pop sensibilities and uh, stuff like that. But Boingo was more than that too. There's a lot of world music sounds to Boingo with uh, some of their intricate percussion, uh, a lot of ska influence. Uh, they famously had a, a three-piece horn section in their band. Uh, Danny Elfman was just a, a very... Uh, he's a brilliant human being. A lot of uh, very interesting musical background. I remember hearing an interview or reading a story that he just he did a lot of... Uh, studying in Africa and he discovered all these uh percussion instruments that he would like ship back home to himself he was a, a con he was traveling the world as a uh violinist if I'm not mistaken um his older brother Richard Elfman actually started Oingo Boingo as this sort of off-kilter um theater troupe uh, entitled The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo where it was a little vaudeville a little avant-garde uh, just like offbeat uh, music um, the sort of uh, I'm not exactly sure so I'm just like sort of skimming through his uh, Wikipedia page um, there's, of course, Richard Elfman's uh, film Forbidden Zone, which was sort of based off of the acts and performances that uh, the Mystic Knights would do. And uh, Danny Elfman uh, would then compose all the music for it. Um, and then at a certain point... Um, oh no, cat's freaking out, of course. Um, at a certain point here, it doesn't really say specifically why, but, um, Danny Elfman took over as, uh, the front man for the Mystic Knights, and then transitioned them into a much smaller rock band. They never really achieved top 40 success, but they were very, very popular. Um, they had... Oh, I'm going to... I don't want to screw this up. They had... Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight albums. They were very, very big in the Southern California area. And uh, a lot of their music was featured in films of the time. Uh, most famously, Weird Science, for which they provided the uh, title theme for. 
uh, but also movies like Back to School, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, um, and many others. Um, I remember hearing their song Home Again in uh, Home Alone 3. So they've always been this sort of like cult favorite with a very dedicated fan base. Um, right when uh, Boingo was sort of uh, hitting their zeitgeist, their uh, their their uh, musical peak was uh, like in 1985 with their album Dead Man's Party. Around that time, Tim Burton and Paul Rubens approached Danny Elfman to do the soundtrack for a little movie called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Danny Elfman was initially confused because he didn't really understand why Tim Burton and Paul Rubens wanted a rock band to do a soundtrack for a movie, but uh, it was clear that they just wanted him to compose music for it. Uh, a challenge that he was very intimidated by, but nevertheless exceeded expectations. And thus, the rest is history. Uh, Danny Elfman has... He has uh, four Oscar nominations, two Emmy Awards, a Grammy, and uh, seven Saturn Awards for Best Music. Just to name a few of uh, the accolades that he has received over the years. Um, he's also done a lot of television work as well, of course, famously composing the theme song for The Simpsons and Desperate Housewives. And uh, most recently, the uh, Tim Burton uh, Netflix series Wednesday, uh, the Adams Family TV show, which I have not checked out yet. Similar to the Munsters, which I talked about a little bit on the last episode, I really don't have a connection to the Adams Family, but it's Tim Burton and Stanley Elfman working together again. I would definitely like to check it out. Now this, all of this is great. But it's not exactly why I want to talk about Danny Elfman on today's episode. I want to talk about Danny Elfman's rock star renaissance. Um, a very important moment to me in 2021 was the release of da uh, Danny Elfman's first official solo album. Uh like literally ever first official solo contemporary album not a classical composition uh not a film score big mess released in on june 11th 2021 now i say this is like his first official solo album uh of contemporary music because uh there is there's an erroneously titled uh, album called Solo from 1984, uh, which is basically an Oingo Boingo album. It's a fantastic album. It's one of my favorite uh, albums by them. But it's called Danny Elfman's Solo, and that's not really true. Uh, when they were transitioning between record companies, they didn't have the rights to use... Um, uh, the name Oingo Boingo. So they worked around it by just releasing it as a Danny Elfman quote-unquote solo album. But if you look at the liner notes, like Steve Bartek, Johnny Vatos, Carrie uh, uh, Hatch, uh, all those people are still working on that album. Um, so this is like, was a 
big, big deal because it was it was his first rock album since Oingo Boingo disbanded in 1995. Um, it and it's like his first truly solo effort. Um, and I think it's amazing. I think this album is so good. Uh. I went in October of 2020 he dropped the first single from it called Happy and I was like so stoked so stoked to see like a new Danny Elfman uh rock song and the singles kept coming and coming and I was thinking to myself I was like this motherfucker's got to be dropping an album soon and thankfully he did and not only that, he's dropped a lot of material for it. This album is uh, 72 minutes long, and then he dropped like an equally long remix album called Bigger Messier as well. This album is everything I could want from Danny Elfman today uh, if he is going to be making uh, rock music. Um... There's a lot of uh, people in the Boingo fan community that are really upset that like he's never going to uh, reunite the band. But the thing of it is, like, really kind of, I at least have always kind of gotten the impression that Oingo Boingo was really Danny Elfman's group, and um, it, it's not really known how much all the other members had to contribute to the music, but, like, it always felt like it was Danny Elfman's voice. So when people really want him to see Oingo Boingo re reunited with him, I don't think it's going to... I don't think it would sound any different than this. This is the direct continuation of where Boingo left off with their final album in 1994. And... It, this album has a lot in common with that album, just like compositionally and tonally and stuff like that. I genuinely think that even if this was an Oingo Boingo album, it would so still sound like this. So I'm going to start this whole discussion with just sort of a review of Big Mess. Um, Big Mess is exactly like what it is <laughs> is exactly what this album is but it like in the best way possible um it is a broad sprawling album with a lot of different crazy weird ideas that all for the most part all really work because it is strung together by this just absolute maniac of a talent of a musician it's, uh, like I said, 72 minutes long. It's a double album. Uh, disc one is sort of the more o orchestral side of things. And side two is more of a straightforward rock um, album. That being said, it's like... it's uh, He's blending the use of so many different uh, instruments and styles and sounds that... Um, there's like a full stringed orchestra th like throughout the entire album along with uh electric guitars percussion and 
everything that you would expect from a rock album. Danny Elfman is really flexing his uh, uh, muscles, his musical muscles on this album, really pulling different uh, sort of inspirations from all sorts of music, from um, like industrial metal, metal and punk music and avant-garde uh, orchestral pieces. And every single one of these songs again, with a few exceptions, is an absolute delight. Uh, even just, like, starting from the ty the opening track, Sorry, you get a feeling for how, what this album is going to be like. Just opening, screaming guitars, um, crazy percussion, layered choral vocals, and uh, moody, sweeping string uh, compositions. All, of course, coupled with Danny Elfman's trademark, uh, like, snarling vocal performances and sneering lyrics. This is an angry album. This album uh, is very uh, politically aware. Um, it, is, it, it really pulls no punches about the right wing about COVID, about everything that is going on in the world today. And it's super cool to hear him uh, sort of really create these intense, angry uh, songs about all this stuff. And in more of a straightforward punk rock sense, um than sort of like the early Oingo Boingo stuff, where if it was like a political song, there's something very tongue-in-cheek about it, uh, like uh, capitalism and uh, the controller and stuff like that. Some of it is too on the nose. Uh, the song Serious Ground opens with... Or not Serious Ground, Choose Your Side, excuse me. Uh, Choose Your Side opens with a uh, vocal sample of Donald Trump from some fucking speech he was giving um and uh yeah so some of the lyrics are a little heavy handed uh there's a brand new version of insects on this uh, album which was a boingo song from uh my favorite album by them nothing to fear with uh new uh lyrics um they're all about old white men being compared to in politics being compared to insects it's very it's very intense and very aggressive but very heavy handed too that it could turn some people off I kind of love it though um, there's really only one song on this album that I don't like and that's Dance with the Lemurs uh, it's a little too like meandering and weird even by uh danny elfman's <laughs> standards um it's just like kind of a go nowhere like nothing song uh who knows maybe there's a greater meaning meaning to that song that i don't understand but uh but most of this album it it just fucking rips and some of the songs on this album is some of my favorite rock stuff that Danny Elfman has ever recorded 
Um, everybody loves you. It really feels like it could have been a lost track on that final Boingo album. This long, industrial, uh, almost uh, psychedelic rock song, again, with a, uh, a lot of orchestra orchestra, and uh, backing choruses. Um, just really good stuff. Native Intelligence has this phenomenal opening bass riff and this just driving uh, rock groove. And this just a catchy as all hell chorus. Um, and Kick Me is insane. Kick Me is... It's crazy. Like, other than Henry Rollins, you really don't, like, see people at this age of their life um, putting this much uh, venom into the, into their work. Uh, Kick Me is a phenomenal orchestral uh, punk song. Um, just like it, and it's like so crazy. All these songs are like, if are just they really just showcase the talent of everyone that is uh, performing on this album because the. Some like some of the songs change time signatures like so rapidly. There's just all these different layers of percussion and drums and and uh, guitars and strings and just layered, decadent, crazy shit that you really uh. That and that is the sort of one thing where you can tell that this is fully a Danny Elfman project and not an Oingo Boingo project, because like this music is so um, experimental and really just uh, layered and intricate that you wouldn't expect it from like I don't know, something that Boingo was putting out when they were at the top of the game. But yeah, Big Miss, Big Mess comes highly recommended for me. It's one of my favorite albums of the past, like, five, ten years. I frequently put it on and will always discover something new and appreciate something new about it. Um, and that was just the beginning. Um, the whole sort of inception for this album was Danny Elfman recording new material for Coachella. Uh, Coachella 2020, to be specific, uh, where he was going to be uh, doing this career-spanning concert with new material, stuff from Boingo, and um, uh, like stuff from his films as well. So, obviously, Coachella 2020 didn't happen, but uh, 2020... Was it this year already? I need to double-check this. Um, or was that last year? No, it was this year. Yeah. Coachella 2022, Danny Elfman put on this concert. This, as he called it, from Boingo to Batman and beyond. This, This just insane concert with a full orchestra, full rock band performing stuff from Big Mess 
uh, some big hits from Oingo Boingo, and the orchestra would then perform uh, stuff from his movies. And that was uh, live-streamed. All of Coachella was live-streamed, which was very generous. Um, so I thankfully got to see this performance, and it was just inspiring. Absolutely inspiring. And also, Danny Elfman looks fucking incredible for being 69 years old. The tattoos are stellar. He's still in great shape. <laughs> that dude can play shirtless for the rest of time, for all I care. Um, but if Coachella wasn't enough, what does he do? Halloween this year, he does two shows of basically an even longer show of what he did at Coachella. Which, thankfully, a few kind souls on YouTube have uploaded. And that show is even more fucking impressive and amazing and inspiring than the Coachella show was. It is just... It is... I never thought in a million years that he would be doing stuff like this again. And when he's on stage, you can genuinely tell that he is having a great time. And he is doing something that he loves. It is just... It's super inspiring to me to watch because uh, he has been a creative inspiration on me for a very long time. And to see these new interpretations of old Boingo songs with the orchestra and the new compositions from, from the new rock band and stuff like that, it's it's just something that I never in a million years thought would happen. Because he has always seemed to... Danny Elfman is one of those uh, uh, musical artists who is always sort of... Always sort of reminds me of Prince, where he is constantly trying to better himself and improve and do things that are exciting to him and that he is truly passionate about. And that's why, in some interviews that I've seen with him, you kind of get the impression that maybe he wanted to like distance himself from Boingo or uh, just move ahead. Like, Boingo was great, but that was then. Let's focus on now. It's cool to see him go back and revisit that era because it is still important to so many people. And I think to a degree it's very important to him, too, because he genuinely seems to be having a lot of fun playing those old songs like Only a Lad and Grey Matter and Ain't This the Life, which was like day one for Boingo. And to see him like put this care and love and breathe new life into this music where it sounds familiar but new and exciting. It's just, it's something is very endearing to me and uh, why he's forever going to be one of my favorite uh, musical artists. Um, it's just, if you are even remotely curious about Danny Elfman or 
want to know what Jolin and I have been on about, about this whole Oingo Boingo stuff, um, you really should give it a listen. Um, Boingo is, Boingo is one of the more exciting and interesting, uh, groups of the 80s, and to see Danny Elfman continue like this is really, truly, uh, fascinating and cool and inspiring to me. And, yeah, so... Danny Elfman, always going to be a rock star. And like he said at his show, that uh, the whole show is just jumbled up shit from all over the place. But for better or worse, it's him. And that's what's also so cool about uh, these new performances he's been doing is they feel honest. They feel like the stuff that he want he that he is proud of and uh he uh just this celebration of this very storied uh interesting career and no one lives forever so it's a just a cool to see him doing stuff that uh makes him happy took a brief pause there because i I guess I overestimated how long I thought I was going to be talking about Danny Elfman. I mean, we're at a half an hour, which honestly is mercifully short for how long I can talk about Oingo Boingo and Danny Elfman. But it's not quite a full podcast length, so I'm going to just tack something on here that I... I remember talking about this uh, when we were back when we were doing the original run of Monsters at Midnight, uh, sort of doing an old versus new uh, horror original versus horror remake segment, and uh, I I'll bring I want to bring that back in a uh, some sort of capacity, um, and just because I feel like talking a little bit longer and uh, I don't know. I, I truthfully have no reason other than like half an hour seems pretty short for a podcast. Um, I feel like doing an old versus new. Just feel like talking for a little bit longer about movies that I'm passionate about and uh, horror movies and things that I like. And I mean, if you're listening to this show, that's presumably why you like listening to this show. So I do not think you will mind if you indulge me let's start this first say let's start <laughs> first segment of old versus new let's rock let's talk about maniac i recently watched the uh, 2012 uh remake of maniac the william lustig sleaze exploitation classic starring Joe Spinell. The remake is from 2012 and directed by Frank Colfoon. It might be Frank. I'm not sure. It's, it's F-R-A-N-C-K. Frank Colfoon. Um, Maniac. What a fucking movie. The original, <laughs> that is. I fucking love the original Maniac. Uh, the original Maniac came out in 1980 and was sort of this uh, passion project by Joe Spinell. 
who is a very famous character actor. He's been he's been in just about everything, and that's because I read recently that uh, directors just like loved him and loved having him around, so they would just put him in movies just so they could be around him. Like Joe Spinell is a famously really loved individual which i think is super wholesome given he always usually sort of plays the heavy or like some sort of like just like kind of sleazy dude you can see him in everything from the godfather one and two to the first two rocky movies to nighthawks uh if anyone's other than me has seen nighthawks which you should phenomenal movie sylvester stallone billy d williams rucker howard um, and I, yeah, he's just been in so much taxi, taxi driver, sorcerer, cruising, but he had this idea of sort of, uh, of a movie called Maniac that he originally pitched the script to be sort of a, a vehicle for him and Jason Miller, I want to say his name is... Yes, Jason Miller, who uh, played Father Karras in uh, The Exorcist. Uh, Jason, Because they were good friends as well. Jason Miller was going to play this the detective, and Joe Spinell was going to play the maniac. However, Jason Miller got an opportunity that was going to actually pay serious money because this movie was going to be made for very, very, very little money. Uh, budget, according to a Wikipedia, says three hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, that granted, that's in nineteen eighty. That's be, not adjusted for inflation or anything. So the script was sort of uh, retailored and rewritten to be this character piece about this thoroughly insane individual who, of course, had a bad relationship with his mother. And now is scalping <laughs> women. <laughs> um, yeah, but oh, this movie is so cool. I I I love this movie. Um, this movie has a great texture to it. I love, for lack of a better word, low budget horror movies have this texture to it, this grit um, that you can tell that you can just, like, feel. Um, a lot of that has to do with, like, it, it does take place in New York City uh, in the early 80s, so that's when, like, Times Square in New York City was still, like, properly a bad place to be. Uh, it is... It's, like, 42nd Street era. Like, what you... Like... <laughs> I don't want to say the good old days in New York City, but, like... Like... What taxi driver? What like New York City was a gross place to live for a very long time. Um, and this is one of those movies that really captures it. And what's so interesting about this movie, and especially comparatively to other slasher movies that were coming out, I mean, this isn't exactly a slasher movie, but other horror movies that were coming out in the wake of Halloween is uh, this movie is, like, completely told from the killer's perspective. We spend all of our time with Joe Spinell as Frank Zito. 
seen before he goes and murders people, while he's murdering people, and after he's murdering people. And Joe Spinell, this is one of my favorite performances in a horror movie ever. Uh, it's a little over the top. It's a little, it's a little kind of uh, hammy in some places, but Joe Spinell just has this these powerful expressions throughout the whole movie, whether it's anger or fear or sorrow or regret. You can feel everything that this dude is feeling and just how fucking unhinged he is. Joe Spinell is truly, like, a, a great actor, and it's a shame that he didn't get, like, more starring roles because he is really, really good in this. And that just makes this movie, like, super uncomfortable and uncompromising. And, of course, uh, famously, this movie was seriously, um, uh, like, controversial when it first came out. Um, there were, like, protests, there were, like, uh, it was not officially labeled a video nasty in the UK, but it was pretty seriously, like, banned. Um, this movie, and honestly, to a degree, this movie earns it. This is a hard movie. Um, and, and... That's what makes it such a good horror movie, too, though, is, like, just how uncomfortable and uncompromising it is, even for the low budget. And thankfully, uh, for the low budget, the special effects are phenomenal, because they got the the one great, not well, not the one great, I misspoke, the one and only Tom Savini to do the special effects work. Of course, there's the famous uh, shotgun head explosion, <laughs> but just every all the special effects in this movie are gnarly and grisly, and yeah, it this movie. I can see why people uh, are turned off by this movie. This movie is very hard. It is. Uh, it's very unapologetic. It is teetering on misogynistic. Just, but, like, in the same way that, like, you could argue that any horror movie from this era was misogynistic because the targets are young, beautiful women. Um, there is, I mean, there is a lot about this movie that it does make it kind of tasteless. But also, if you're into old school horror movies and uh, exploitation films, that's really not going to bother you. Um, what's so cool about this movie is, like, the psychological angle, um, that you really spend all this time with this killer, and really get to know through, like, monologues and, uh, internal dialogues what he is feeling and what he is thinking, and there's just really not, it, oh, it's just, it's hard to really put into words exactly how effective this movie works. It's something about that, like, low-budget look, that grain, that grit, that texture, the, like, dark, cold shots on empty, 
dirty New York City streets, the bright red Tom Savini blood, and Joe Spinell's just absolutely unhinged look in his eye. And, I don't know, if that doesn't sell you, nothing will, I guess. Uh, if, you, if that doesn't sell you, check out the poster, because it has one of my absolute favorite horror movie posters from that era. It is incredible that that was actually, like, displayed. Those posters were displayed somewhere. So, I love the original Maniac. Cut to 2012. Maniac. Starring Elijah Wood. Directed by Frank Calfoon. And produced by Alexander Aja, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and William Lustig. William Lustig also uh, produced it as well. Um, William Lustig directed the original and may not have hit that as hard as I uh, wanted to. Oh, and uh, Alexander Aja co-wrote it too. That's interesting. Um, I was excited by the prospect of this movie because Elijah Wood is... Uh, an admitted fan of old weird horror movies like I am and that's why he created oh what's his production company called is that XYZ films no Spectre Vision excuse me that's why he created Spectre Vision to give like low budget horror filmmakers a chance which I think is awesome so I was really excited by the prospect of of him in this part because he I can only assume he also loves the original Maniac uh, he has it would be a different take on the character because like Joe Spinell is Joe Spinell is like well Joe Spinell is dead so <laughs> it's not like I can hurt his feelings Joe Spinell looks like every Italian American stereotype He's a big dude. He's got like, he's got just like a creepy mustache. He just he looks like a, a heavy. He looks like a thug. Elijah Wood would be interesting to see. Maybe Frank Zito is more of like the boy next door type of serial killer or something like that. And then of course, famously, that I heard about for years, even before even before seeing the original Maniac, I kept hearing about the cinematography gimmick of this maniac being that the majority of the film is POV, Frank Zito's POV. So not only are we spending the entire time with the killer, we're literally seeing everything through his eyes. I was like, all right, shit. This actually could be really scary and, and could even be better than the original. And I've heard a lot of glowing reviews for this movie. I hear a lot of people say that they do prefer this to the original. Um, I don't. <laughs> um, this movie is fine. Uh, this, mo this movie... This is an interesting film. Uh, this movie is nowhere near as hard-hitting as you might expect it to be. Or as it should be, given that literally the whole point of the movie is to see everything through the killer's eyes. Um, barring some moments, there are a few grisly moments that 
did have me crawling out of my skin a little bit. But this movie has an odd sense of sterility to it. It never... And I think it comes down to the fact they they want to make Frank Zito a more sympathetic character. Um, so when he's having when he's having these visions of his mother and like his mannequins coming to life. Um, oh, I I totally forgot to mention that like Frank Zito scalps women and then nails the scalps to mannequins and dresses them up like the women he kills um, to like preserve them forever um, because his mother like abandoned him constantly as a child and then he eventually murdered his mother um, backtracking a little bit um, spoiler alert obviously so when we're having when we're in the killer's POV and we're having these visions and these meltdowns and these freakouts you the movie is also simultaneously trying to make him more sympathetic like he is truly like you see him taking medicine you truly like you feel like this is like something that he is really struggling with now there is aspects of that in the original too but frank in the original is also just like a skeezy dude like he picks up prostitutes he kind of preys on women he like openly stalks women in that movie he's just not a good dude and i don't think a movie called maniac <laughs> should be concerned about making you sympathetic for the killer especially if we're going to be seeing it through the pov of the killer um does it make the movie more believable maybe but also the thing that's most disappointing to me about this is elijah wood just doesn't bring it the way that I thought he was going to and I think it is because he's really leaning into like the boy next door the whole like oh, oh hi oh I'm just so sheepish uh, but you're so pretty um that whole sort of thing that we've seen like done a million times with serial killers and movies like and stuff like that um it's just not a super interesting take on the character. Um, and it's also, it's because it is from the killer's POV, it, it's obvious that most of, if not all of the, the dialogue was recorded in post um, with the image. So you kind of lose a sort of authentic edge to the performance when he's not actually there, like in the moment saying this stuff. It really feels like he's in a sound booth, like in a controlled environment. Um, and the and that's the thing is, this movie just doesn't really take advantage of the fact that it is through the killer's POV. And like, and then sometimes it's not. Confusingly, it'll take a like switch out of the killer's POV just to like remind you that it is Elijah Wood or something like that. Um, and I don't know if that's supposed to him like him having like 
more visions or out of body experiences or what have you but it just doesn't really work that well and it doesn't really lend any greater meaning to anything that we're watching um this movie is totally fine if if you if if you want something inventive um from a filmmaking standpoint i would give this movie a mild recommendation because of it is cool to have the majority of the film be through the killer's pov but there's just so much about this film that doesn't gel for me and i at the end of the day just think the original does so many laps around this because the original is so uncompromising and so unflinching and so mean and dark and grotesque that this movie feels very plain very by the numbers and too safe um and it really just comes down to the depiction of frank zito in this movie it's like i do not need frank zito to be a sympathetic character i want to be terrified of everything that frank zito is about to do and this sheepish, oh, I, I don't want to, so I'm on pills, and oh, and look at how traumatized I was as a boy thing that the movie is really forcing down your throat just didn't work for me. Um, and then, of course, it comes down to some of the better moments in the movie are just recycled from the original. There's not a whole lot that's unexpected in this if you haven't if you have seen the original. Uh this movie's fine. It's not one that I see myself revisiting, especially over the original. So old versus new, old wins. Check out the nineteen eighty Maniac. The 2012 Maniac is alright uh, for a morbid curiosity's sake, um, but definitely, for me personally, nowhere near as uh, gripping or uh, uh, unsettling as the original is. And, yeah, there we go. I think we'll call that an episode. Danny Elfman, Maniac, let me know what you think. As always, you can uh, send us an email at monsters.midnight, spelt incorrectly, at gmail.com. Send us a DM through Facebook or Instagram, and feel free to give me a follow at letterbox.com slash mattflamingo for uh, more uh, reviews and takes and stuff like that on stuff outside of the realm of horror as well. Um, appreciate you all very much. And we will catch you very, very soon.